Hey, Augmenters. This is such a fun episode. Do Lin Tu is a character and a half. He's been a friend of mine for many, many, many years. Uh, we knew each other way back when we were co-arts editors together at our school newspaper, and he has gone on to lots of incredible work in journalism. And I got so much out of this conversation. Uh, do is a graduate school professor at the Columbia School of Journalism. So yeah, what do you think? One thing I couldn't figure out, am I a disciple or a do-viver? I, I, I'm probably a disciple. It's a little easier with my speech impediment here, but what a great conversation with Dew. It was fantastic. I mean, not only is he also city park basketball hooper like me, but he also is just so thoughtful about his students. He understands that. I mean, he even said it himself. He's like, so much of the learning occurs in the middle. You know, it's, it's, it's these in-between things where a lot of the deep learning occur. So it's not when you're in the middle of a lecture. It's not when you're at home doing your homework at times. It's asking the questions about the lecture. It's following up about a comment on an assignment. That's when you start to really instill some of these messages. And mentoring is a beautiful in-between thing for really building stronger connections and you know, taking in information that you can really use later in life. And I think he inadvertently really talked a lot about our principle of evolution, right? How these relationships evolve over time. There's students that he had in his class, you know, 10, 15 years ago that he works with now and how these kind of relationships evolve over time, as we've seen both with people that you and I have mentored, with students of yours, it just kind of, it, it really evolves. So I think you're, everybody's going to get a lot out of this episode. I know I did. I also liked how he kind of made it clear that there are some distinct pieces between sometimes like this transactional mentoring versus lifelong uh, relationships in that when there's already kind of like a relationship in place, like do at Columbia or uh, myself at Tufts University's Friedman School of Nutrition, if somebody is there's a student at the school, you have this then kind of like right or license almost to reach out to one of us and just say, hey, do you have 10 or 15 minutes? It's, it's going to be hard for us to say no. And that is kind of transactional mentoring. If you don't need to continue it, if there's not some of that initial overlap of the Venn diagram of one personal and one professional, that's okay. Like, but, it, but take advantage of these opportunities that present themselves. And if one out of 10 people says, no, I won't meet with you, well, you just had nine really fascinating 15-minute conversations that can go a long way. And you can ask really targeted questions and actually be vulnerable on your questions because, hey, you're in the Columbia School of Journalism like trust tree. And there's nothing wrong with asking that question, getting great advice and saying, hey, I'll see you at an alumni event. Peace. Totally. And I think that he has great advice, even if you are not in a uh, you know little cocoon of graduate school as well, and just a good reminder of how to reach out to mentors you've had over time. So without further ado, here we go. Thank you so much. We are so excited to have this conversation with you, Do I was telling Jimmy about you when we were chatting earlier, and I was like, I am just dying to hear what Do has to say, because A, you're, you're like everything. You're, you're a journalist. You are a entrepreneur. You've been in content for so long. You've been around the block maybe once or twice. You're a Brooklyn guy, you're Brooklyn dad. And I feel like the conversation we had before, 
it was so cool to hear about, uh, you know, about kind of your experience with mentoring. So thanks so much for hanging out with us today. Pleasure to be here. Glad, <laughs> glad to chat some more. And did, did I hear correctly that you're also a, a baller? You, you still hoop in New York City? That is, uh, so I'm on a team right now. So as Julie mentioned, I'm a professor. And so I keep, you know, they're all grad students and I have good relationships with many of them. And so one guy that I've been on this uh, years long text chat about the NBA, we're just obsessed about the NBA. He says, hey, I'm starting a team. Do you want to join? But uh, unbeknownst to me, literally the team, the dudes on my team are half my age, 10 times my athleticism. Um, <laughs> so this might be my, uh, this might be my farewell tour. You, you, you got you to stop and, and hit those Dumbo outside courts. Those things are, are a gem in the city. <laughs> so, so I don't know. I think this is it. So hopefully they'll they'll raise my number in the rafters after this one. So does that we mean you're so lucky? And now you have to mentor the youngins at this point. Is that is that how that works? And then like then they suddenly become the old guys like Jimmy. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, they're, they got many years before they're the old guys like me. So they're, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens to them, but yeah, they're, they're my students and it's kind of a nice segue into our conversation because it's, you know, I teach grad school, which I've never taught undergrads. So I don't know that dynamic. Obviously I went through undergrad, but with grad school, you know, a lot of the people are, uh, you know, definitive in what they want, not definitive. They're more, they have more direction in what they want to do. Most undergrad, you know, like we all went for a liberal arts education, at least Julie and I did. We're just kind of like, oh, we, we need this degree. But I think in grad school, people want a degree, but like, you know, one year is not your future. So a lot of my job is postgraduate uh, kind of keeping up with them and them keeping up with me and, 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 and kind of continuing that learning outside of Columbia. I love it. Well, I guess I got a, pa a lot of paths I want to walk in your footsteps to because including being the old man uh, on the basketball team, uh, I have also never taught undergrad and only graduate students. Mm -hmm. And I also find the same thing that, you know, I can be useful in the classroom, but I think I'm more useful outside the classroom of trying to make connections and keep in touch. Uh, I probably have just as many conversations outside of class with former students and current students. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, like, um, you know, no matter how realistic you want to make your curriculum, it's still school, right? And so you learn so much doing the thing and you don't know what you're going to learn until the thing happens to you. And that's never inside of a classroom, no matter what field you're in. And actually, you do, actually do, you're like hitting the nail on one of the reasons why Jimmy and I started this. So uh, Jimmy and I met when Jimmy asked me to be a guest speaker in his class at Tufts where he teaches food and entrepreneurship. Um, and I think I was telling you, we met right before the pandemic and, and, you know, had a lockdown to have ample amount of time to have interesting phone conversations um, on Friday nights. And we spent a lot of time talking about like generally this student population, right? Like these grad students, they're, you know, out of undergrad, maybe had one or two jobs. They're not quite sure exactly where they want to go. And they're, our experiences are really struggling with like asking for mentors or perceiving mentors as being uh, kind of an important part of their journey. And our goal with Augmenters is really to create like a shared language around that so that there was sort of a path to go down. Do you find that your students are interested in having you be their mentor? Or do you think they kind of get the concept? Yeah. Um, so the joke is, and I didn't make this up because it would be super vain to make it up. Um, people who go through my class, there's two categories. They're the disciples who really believe in what I did and the do vivers, the ones who barely got through, right? And so 
Uh, I tend to lose tr- uh, touch with the Duvivers. Uh, you know, they go on their own path. But the the other group, yeah, they they recognize that. Well, we're specifically Columbia J School is a one year program. Most graduate programs in journalism are two years, but we've never gone to a two year program. Columbia is expensive. It's prohibitively expensive. It's even expensive for one year. But unfortunately, what happens with that is we have to condense you know two years of learning into one year. Okay, learning is not just the number of classroom hours, as you guys both know. It's, I think they recognize that. I think they recognize the pace of the school is really fast, but they also come May, they're like, oh my God, I'm just starting to understand. You don't know what you don't know until you know a little bit of it. And once you know a little bit, you're like, okay, I, I've gotten a little bit better, but I know I have a frame of reference of how much better I still need to get. And I think that's where the mentorship comes into play. And that, that mentorship needs to go over a calendar period that is much longer than an arbitrary two semester system, right? Academia is set up in semesters because it works conveniently. You start in September, you graduate in May. Someone created that so that we can like, you know, farm the fields in the summer. I don't know how that kind of thing started working, but that's not how real life works. So you need that constant like reflection. All these things don't work on a two semester system. So they're really understanding that. And so that's why they reach out. And luckily, I have good relationships with them. And uh, I actually enjoy mentoring. So so it works out really well. Is this something that Columbia encourages or promotes in some formal way because of the one-year aspect of the program? No, I, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I think all my colleagues are pretty good at this. And I think a part of it is that, you know, painful guilt we feel around that tuition, you know, Journalism is not a hot, it's not, it's not a, you know, an industry you enter in to get rich. Columbia's tuition is really expensive. And I think we recognize that, A, you know, we've trained you. So, so we see something in you. We, we, we want to support the industry. We believe in all those things like, you know, speaking truth to power, keeping, you know, governments accountable, all the things you, you do in journalism. So we want to support that. But we also feel that, you know, yeah, you, you're not going to be that reporter after one year, and especially now in the, the way the business is, um, you know, when Julie and I, we were both on the daily. So, so back in the day, the, the Tufts Tufts daily. daily, yeah, the Tufts daily. Yeah. Back in the day, I'm probably the last generation that could go to a newspaper, work for a few years, work under a, you know, grisly old editor that would yell at you and, you know, tear you a new one in every story. But you knew that after five years of that, you would be good or good enough to go to the larger market. Newsrooms have shrunk and in that shrinking, that middle management of what would have been your kind of de facto mentor has disappeared. Like I said, you go to Cincinnati, Cincinnati and you write for the paper there like that, that editor that would just chew you out week in and week out in many ways was not just your boss, but your mentor. Right. And so I think a part of, you know, a long way of answering your question, Jimmy, is that we feel and we recognize that this is missing. Um, this kind of mentorship is missing. Uh, and so we have to give a lot of it after grad school to continue their training. Do you think that there's a different benefit to the the younger journalists coming along that it is now not manager and mentor, kind of the one-stop shop, and that now there is a manager or maybe, I don't know, a more of like a ambiguous lack thereof, and then they are finding mentors outside of their like direct work or who controls their pay? You'd have to ask the young folks. I, I can kind of guess, but I think actually most people don't understand what a mentor is. They don't understand, A, as a mentor, many people don't know how to mentor. I mean, that's, you know, they just think that I'll have coffee with someone is mentorship, and that doesn't necessarily make it so. From a younger person's perspective, if you've never had that relationship, because again, in my experience, most times mentors pick you and and they see something in you and they they acknowledge and then you go oh wow 
there's this relationship that I have because I had a great mentor in my colleague, David Claytel, before he passed away. He saw something in me that we would have these conversations that was not related to schoolwork. The more I realized that there was this, this body of knowledge that was not contained in a textbook that I could tap into, that wasn't my boss, right? That, that didn't have that judgment of my boss. That was really valuable. So I don't know if any, like enough people are aware of what that mentorship dynamic means. But once they do, I think I think they really quickly understand there's value to it. That's not anything that's been what they've experienced before in school or even maybe even on a job. And too, would you say like, I'm so curious, do you feel like they're not sort of valuing it because they don't know about it? Or do you feel like having some like kind of a little bit more structured language or even more examples would be helpful? What do you think kind of needs to be done for them to, to get into it? Mentor availability. I, I, a lot of times, I can only speak for my industry, there's there's well-meaning people who say, or they'll go on social media and they'll go, hey, we need more diverse journalists, or we need more you know, women in the field, or we need whatever. If you're a person out there and you want to be mentored, DM me, right? And it's, it comes from a good place, right? And people will take that offer because like, hey, here's an editor of a place, you know, it's my foot in. They'll DM them, but like life is busy for everyone. So I don't begrudge anyone. And that, that, that becomes a one time back and forth email relationship, right? The failing of that kind of dynamic is that a, the, the well-meaning person becomes overwhelmed because like I said, it's like, if you open up something in your DMS and you know, a thousand people write to you, how successful can you be? That's just mentorship takes time. The other side is that if that's your first touch with mentorship as a young person or an inexperienced person, then I think you might associate mentorship with just like a quick text every now and then, right? Oh, this is what the person can give me. This is all I can ask for. This is the kind of shallowness of that relationship. That all comes from a well, a place of well-meaning with social media. We can DM people, we can find people quickly, but mentorship takes much greater depth. And I don't think people understand that on both sides, mentor or mentee. And I think if there was an educational, a way to educate people on how to do it and how to ask for it, I think it'd be uh, much more popular. Do you think that has something to do with, I'm not supposed to say marketing, but it's marketing, like the branding around the term and definition of mentorship or mentoring that this term really hasn't changed? And yeah, I, I think, you know, people have weird ways of defining it. You know, people have been in good mentorship relationships, understand it. But I think the kind of pop culture shorthand for mentorship is, is this almost Hollywood vision of like, you know, the master and the student and or, you know, the parent like this, this kind of like dead poet society type of thing, you know, this, this, <laughs> this idea and, 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 you know, those, those Hollywood stories end in 90 minutes. Mentorship has to take years. And I think that's, that's what people don't understand. I'd say, I think people want it. People want help. So I don't think marketing is, I, I, I don't think mar you have to find the need for it. I think you just have to present the understanding of what it is. So, I feel like so, you're so, describing like transactional mentoring. Like it's a trans, like the express mentoring version, like done in, you know, 90 seconds or whatever versus this long-term lifelong commitment to each other and because we've had both you know mentors for who both happen to be named pete which is sort of weird for a very long time and like these very very long relationships and yeah you, you can't it's hard to establish that so fast on zoom in 20 minutes and then really get to know each other but would you say like i'd love to hear a little bit too if you don't mind a little bit about like your mentoring relationship yeah i mean the as a shock to me, you know, the New York Times wasn't knocking down my door to be a journalist for them. So, which is like, probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Which now, I was like, God's protection. Explains, 
I realized that, you know, I need to go to grad school. I need to learn more. And when I went, it was a one-year program, I went to Columbia J School. And there uh, I was ready to be a, you know, frankly, Cameron Crowe. This was like the almost famous era. And I wanted to like write about bands because I was coming from the art section of the Tufts Daily. <laughs> you know, like that's that's like I wanted to like interview Pearl Jam and that like make a career of that, right? And so I remember the first day, uh, you know, after I got into Columbia J School, they had this open house where you could come up and like sit in on lectures and stuff and decide finally if you wanted to plunk down the thousands of dollars to attend. I sat in on this lecture uh, by this guy, David Claytel, who said, um, who's talking about the power of the moving image. And immediately I went down to the dean's office and said, I don't want to be a magazine. Because back then you had to sign up if you wanted to be broadcast or magazine or newspaper. They had these tracks. So I said, I don't want to be a magazine journalist. I want to do what that guy's doing. But he became my professor. And I remember our discussions went far beyond like how to hold a camera or how to do interviews. We were talking about like the arc of my career very early on. And I realized that this guy, you know, had had a little bit of state, you know, you know, some skin in the game in terms of time, you know, he had a lot of students and, but whenever I made an office hours with him, it was not limited to 15 minutes. It could be as long as we wanted. And then I got to the point where I was like, okay, I can ask him about my life five years from now, not the assignment that's due next week, which is, which is a really big uh, kind of relationship hurdle to make with someone. Because when you're in school, if you guys remember, you kind of know the teacher owes you X, Y, and Z. The teacher owes you class time. The, the teacher owes you editing your paper. The teacher owes you X number of office hours, but they don't owe you anything after that, right? But once you understand that these people have other things to offer, that's when the real mentorship happens. And I think I've modeled my relationship with my students very much after that because you do model behavior, right? Uh, and so I, I modeled the way that he... He talks, I talk to my students like that. I push them the same way he pushed me. Um, you know, I force them to think about life after J school, like he forced me to, because I don't know if he considered himself a mentor, but he, he definitely was one. And then years later, when I joined the faculty of the journal school, he was my mentor in being a professor. And so even though I had been a student, that's a different relationship to being a colleague. So that's a really long way of saying, like, I had to model behavior that I saw. And I think a lot of mentors or people who, again, really well-meaning people who want to mentor have never had that that dynamic to, to model themselves after because it's it's actually really hard to mentor well. And and so I was lucky to have someone who knew how to do it really well. Do I'm curious, during the semester, you talked about uh, what students feel like their uh, you know, instructors, professors owe them. Do you, do you have a way of knowing when someone starts to realize that you are open to further conversations to assist this student beyond what you quote unquote owe them? Like, is there some kind of like switch that happens a majority of the time where you're like, oh, not that you're showing up and you're already doing this, but that the actually the mentee kind of clicks it and gets it? Because that's the part that I see that often misses. It's not the person being open to mentor. It's the mentee misses, oh, I just need to send a text to talk again next month. Yeah, Jimmy, you're absolutely right. So a couple of things uh, related to technology. I used to have like office hours on a fixed date from X hour to X hour, right? I stopped doing that because frankly, everyone's schedules were so different. So some students might not be available. So from a practical level, I said, by appointment only. And, and what I didn't realize happened by that appointment only concept, what exactly we were talking about, the ones who wanted it made the appointment. 
Mm. You all, you always have those weirdos that just want office hours because you just want to talk. Like I'm not counting those, but there are people who's like the guy has has opened the door. I just have to open it, right? And so if I have a class of 16 students, probably only three to four of them will open that door. Secondly, we always have a some kind of group online, whether it's Slack or WhatsApp. We always have a class kind of you know messaging thing. Uh, a couple mm-hmm. of reasons is. All the official stuff goes over email. Test is the wrong word because I'm not testing anyone, but th- that's another indicator of who reaches out. And so I'll start, the semester will start with like questions to the group, but then suddenly there's going to be a couple students that suddenly take my number from the group and then individually privately message me and for various reasons. And so I think, I think that that is an indicator to me that people have a, those people have recognized that I'm open to more time, but also they they have genuine questions to ask. And so that, 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 that's when those relationships start to really form for me. I love that you have some students already jumping in and texting you in the, in the first semester because you'll laugh. I, I say all my students, LinkedIn me. You need to LinkedIn me. Trust me, I still have students that have not LinkedIn me. It's, it's such an interesting dynamic and I don't know why. And I know they're on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a personality thing, I think. It's really like, and, and like I said, it's not a test, but it's an indicator. And I'm not, and I used to think it was shy versus not shy people. Even shy ones, the ones shyest in class, are the ones that will reach out to me on that in the, in that way. So, so I think it's just kind of who wants it more. Well, Ellen, I love what we've. I mean, something we've been talking about again. All these like kind of lame mentoring terms. Another one is reverse mentoring, which we're trying to come up with something better for. But basically, that idea of not only do they have the opportunity to get to learn from you, all of your experience, but um, you get to learn so much from them. And um, both of you, I guess, similarly having grad students that you're working with, but also businesses that can kind of benefit from a younger knowledge. This must be great too. I mean, do you find too that you learn, you know, do you find that you learn a lot from them and, you know, maybe the ones that really have t- potentially like an extra skill are the ones that kind of you're more drawn to as well? Uh, yeah, I think, I think in any field, again, but, you know, our minds is like, you know, journalism and storytelling, but I think this applies to any field is we often in the educational realm, we, we, we talk about the what and we talk about the how, but the why gets lost somewhere in there, right? The why do we do this? Why do we write it this way? Or why do we ask questions this way to our interviews, right? Because I get oftentimes curriculum is based on how to do it. This is how you set up an interview. This is how you set up a camera. And with that kind of assumption that because we've been doing it for 20 years, we inherently know the why, right? So what, what happens with my students in that kind of reverse mentorship is they will ask, why do you do this? And I actually have to articulate to them, you do it A, B, and C way, not X, Y, and Z way. And in the field, when I personally work, I don't ask myself those questions. But when I'm forced to reflect to them, I'm actually forced to really interrogate myself. And sometimes maybe my why isn't the best why. Maybe my why was because the industry has been doing this for 50 years, which is kind of a BS answer in a lot of ways, right? So that kind of reverse mentorship is this kind of wide-eyed reflection on the industry and, and kind of conventions and kind of methodologies that some are great. That's, that's you know, there's, there's efficiencies built in through the years. We've learned the best way to do things. But also with the changing world is like, well, maybe we don't interview the same people. Maybe if we're doing a, you know, a story on, you know, police brutality, the first person we talk to is not the police guy. 
right? Like, like there's, there's ways of kind of rethinking what we do. And that comes from that fresh perspective. And, and I think they don't have experience, but the reverse side of not having experience is they don't have conventions that can be really suffocating as well. So, so yeah, I, I definitely, I find that to be true. So did you have a reason then for why you were putting your hand slightly in front of the camera and then moving it out so your face would get fuzzy for a moment and then not? <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, just for dramatic effect. Right there, yeah. right? <laughs> I want to be an influencer. It, it was very successful. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, they'll ask me those ridiculous little questions. And I always take a pause and it's like, huh. And if I don't really have a good reason, that's like, you know, that's that's definitely something for me to reflect on. And that's the, that's a clear example of that reverse mentorship right there. So I'd love to hear, do if you have one, this is one of my favorite things to try to like model out. You're talking about modeling, you're talking about indicators. And then in these relationships, it's very hard, I think, for folks to understand, wait, are we walking down this mentoring path together? Or am I just asking you quickly about a job and I'll never talk to you again? Like how to have these indicators that show that we are hitting all the right buoys and that we are going to go out into this ocean at some point together. And you already mentioned that you tell folks at the beginning in September that, hey, it's going to wait until May until it clicks. So I'm curious both either for your courses or for mentoring relationships, you kind of say, hey, look, like you're going to start here and then it's going to get better. It's going to go up and it's going to feel really, really hard. And it's going to go back to neutral. Like, do you kind of like tell them the path they're on so they can look around and see, yeah, I'm hitting all the right like places. I'm walking the path. And by the end, I know where I'm going, but it feels really weird right now. Yeah. So, so, you know, not necessarily the path, but at the beginning of, so, so Columbia is a pass fail school. And so, uh, you know, which is great because either you pass or you fail. And, and I think it works for journalism because like, what's a B minus piece of journalism versus a B plus? Like, like I wouldn't be able to grade that myself, right? But well, it's just a really frustrated student. That's what it yeah, is. Right? It's a student. <laughs> exactly. And I don't want to have those conversations, right? And, and, and like half my life is changing grades. But I say to them, you know, what is the goal of this class? What is the goal of your whole year here? And, and it breaks down to this. You start here and your goal should be to end up here. So if you have no experience and you end up with some experience, you've won. If you have a lot of experience and you get much better, you, you've won even more. But if you were awesome and then you flatline, man, I, I, there's nothing I can do for you. I don't care that you, are, you just wasted $100,000, right? So I think that is kind of the forecasting for my students. And the reason I put in those relative terms is because, at least in our school, it's very, I think this is true in a lot of grad schools, it's very competitive. People are looking around. They're looking around it's like, hey, that guy seems to be so wonderful. And that's not always true. It's sometimes like the loudest speakers in the room sound, seem like they're the, doing the best, but they're just dynamic, right? Doesn't mean they're getting the best grades. So I say to them, you know, mind your own business and think about your, your ramp, right? If you're starting from zero and you go to three, that's better than someone who starts at six and ends up at six, right? And so I think that that puts them a little bit of ease because it forces them to think about improvement. I think that's the kind of bottom line about uh, mentorship. It's not these, you know, granular moments of, hey, what do you think about this job? That's something you would ask a mentor for. I think mentorship is about your career. Is this going to get me from here to here in terms of my career, right? And so I think when I set that dynamic for them, I said, I don't care what you're starting at. As long as you're better in May, your career looks great. And, and I think they understand that when I put it in those terms. It's interesting. I, I, I totally agree on the same way. Not necessarily that, like, it's almost about mentoring is about success. Success can be defined by the mentee however they choose. 
And I actually have one student where this individual is just fantastic, doesn't need any help with career, you know, World Bank, keep on going. And, uh, but we talk about other things. uh, And that's, I can be actually more helpful because they've already surpassed me in like, you know, career success. Oh, exactly. And so that's, that's whatever that is, that's your line. That's your individual line. But if you flatline, no matter what that is, that's kind of a failure on my part. Like if you're not, if you're not improving. Well, and there's also the element of humility too, right? I think we always talk about this even more in the business context. You know, if you have, you're kind of, especially when your people are kind of smashed together in a corporate mentoring program, then they sit down together and, you know, the mentee is like, no, I'm good. I got it. It's like, okay, well, great. <laughs> right, right, that's great. Rock on, enjoy the rest of your life. Right, and that's like what Jimmy says, is like, you know, I might have someone who is a student that, you know, has has already written for the New York Times, right? What do they need my help for? But no, but they haven't done this part of their career. And it actually forces them to kind of redefine what their version of success is. And that's, I agree, Jimmy, that's, that's like what, that's how I can help them. Um, do I have another question for you? Like in terms of, do you have kind of go-to resource, kind of a, a, a mentee, like you don't know them that well? Do you have, you know, kind of a, a couple of resources that you just send their way automatically? No, I don't. I don't have like a, you know, it actually depends on the question. I mean, I think, I, th- I think that the ones that I have, frankly speaking, if I said, they're like, hey, I have a question on this. And I say, check out these three links. I think those are the ones I want to less engage with. And I don't feel like I actually want to be their mentor. Or maybe it's early on and I want to kind of test it out. How much do you want it, right? Uh, but I think I think when mentorship comes through, it, it is there's the one part. It's like, I have a question. Do can you answer it? But it's really on me to check in with them when I haven't heard from them in like three months. I'm like, hey, you started that job three three months ago. How's it going? And and it's just like that simple, you know, we're so interconnected these days, but we oddly drop the ball on sometimes asking the important questions. The really quick, like, hey, how's that job going is literally like six words, right? But we we, we don't do that. You know, three months comes by and I haven't, they haven't heard from me, I kind of expect them to follow up with me as well. It's, it's a dance you do, right? And and so if they follow with me, then then I'm on with them. So so it's this back and forth. That's the only way it works. Like people who want to mentor have to have some skin in the game. That's the that's the teacher dynamic. That's a professor. I'll stand on a stage and I'm going to broadcast my knowledge to you. But that's not what a mentor relationship is. It is more parallel, in my opinion. TED Talk mentoring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. How has mentoring in your eyes evolved in journalism specifically now that there aren't people physically in new newsrooms bouncing into each other? Like, I feel like this is a like an aggressive microcosm for everybody now with the pandemic. Like this shift was already happening before. And now I don't think you can educate me, but I don't think people in journalism are coming to physically see each other. So how are these relationships being made and how do you even know that, okay, I can be a bit vulnerable and ask for help from somebody else? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so you're spot on in journalism, you know, even before the pandemic, there had been uh constricting of newsrooms, you know, there had been kind of through mergers and acquisitions, large hedge funds, just buying up newspaper groups, consolidation, obviously things get smaller. And during COVID, it reached a point where everyone's from home and, and, you know, for example, the McClatchy chain gave up all their newsrooms that, and I think what, what is happening is that has changed the dynamic of mentorship in journalism even more. In lieu of that dynamic, I think there's these kind of different relationships through Slack channels or, or LinkedIn groups or, or uh, you know, WhatsApp, all these kind of online 
platforms that have allowed people to connect with each other. Um, in many ways, that's efficient because you can find people quickly. You can you can you don't have to make an appointment for four thirty to come to their office. You can zip them a note. But on the other hand, there's that like those 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 kind of nuanced moments of being in the same room with someone that that's that's missing. So I think I think we're exchanging one thing for another in journalism. We're changing the speed and the reach of social and these platforms where we're missing a lot of that kind of one-on-one mentorship that I don't think we've, we figure out how to, how to uh, replace yet. I think we will. I think humans crave that, but I don't think right now we're such in a tumultuous industry where we're just trying to stay afloat. If we had a moment to, to take a breath, I think we'll start to kind of figure out how do we not just survive, but then improve the industry. And so with like, Dovetailing into a conversation of reverse mentoring, where older people are helping, or young people are helping older, do you see this kind of also shift occurring in journalism, where now that younger people can take out their phone, broadcast something on YouTube, and if it's interesting and shares a unique perspective, that can actually be journalism sooner than later? Are you seeing older older people coming into journalism later in their careers and looking for advice from younger folks? No, I think I think um, not necessarily looking for advice, but recognizing that they did not grow up in the same world. I think older people are still, whether it's ego or whether it's shyness, afraid to ask questions, especially when it comes to technology, frankly. You know, when when how do I navigate TikTok? I hear TikTok, right? But my kids are doing TikTok, but I also understand the Washington Post wants me to do TikTok. That's a terrifying thing. That's kind of like asking advice about a foreign language or, or how to dance. If the Washington Post asked me to do anything, I'd be terrified. So I can. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so I think, I think there is an understanding that they don't know, but I don't think at this point in 2022, there's still an understanding of how it works. Not to pick on the New York times, but two days ago, they just released a new social media policy. Um, so Dean Becquet, the, the editor-in-chief of uh, New York Times, set out this new policy that reversing years and years of kind of like everyone go out there and be a brand. He said, frankly, you're spending too much time on Twitter now. So there's there's some merits to that. But also, I think what he's failing to address is the good side of being active on social. There's terrible sides like you know, you could be a political reporter and the, the, the mob from either side of the political spectrum can come after you. So that's terrifying, right? You can get death threats, but also that's how we get our news, right? And so I think that that there's a generational gap in understanding the medium that if Dean Baquet had just asked maybe a 23-year-old in the newsroom, hey, what do you think the best way of doing this is? He might've gotten a different answer. And I can, I'd be willing to bet my house that that conversation never has happened. Uh, because it's it's awkward for, you know, 65 or whatever he is, editor to ask a 23-year-old because the conventional wisdom is I know more than you. And I think smart people don't believe that anymore. So basically, he got freaked out by Elon's 9% and is reacting. Exactly. He's reacting and, and Elon can, you know, send the, send the, you know, the Musk mob after them, right? And so so that totally is happening. Musk appears. Yeah, exactly. And and I think I think... Again, this is back to your question. There's a generational. Now, I think hopefully my generation, which is somewhere between the 23-year-old and the senior editors, we recognize that I, I have no fear asking my students, what platforms are you on? I don't, I don't feel shame. And I actually don't feel shame about jumping in as a newbie. I think with an older generation, there's fear of, of being called an idiot, right, for trying something new. And I think that people of our age, I'm assuming we're relatively same age, Jimmy, you're a little younger than uh, me and Julie, I think like we, we were 
raised in this kind of me, this multimedia social media thing that we're, we're, we're used to adapting and we're used to asking questions of adapting where I don't think older generations were. Well, do if you have a chance, listen to one of our previous podcasts from season two was a woman named Tanara Schneider who had a really, really powerful um, commentary on like the fear of relinquishing power, like this exact sort of age group that you're talking about. Just there's so much fear of relinquishing power um, yeah. and like what's going to happen next. So I think that feeds exactly into that conversation too. It's a great one. It's a great episode. If you have time. Yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely check it out. And I think it's true. And, and the good side of things is that generation is aging out. And, yes. and hopefully there's a new generation that will be a little bit more uh, open to, to, to discussion. And that will be us, I guess, before we know it. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're quickly heading into the old generation. So we only have a few years of, of enjoying like uh, any relevance. Being in the middle. I know we got to enjoy it while we can. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love this. Um, do I have like one last question for you on my side? Mm-hmm. I don't know if Jimmy will have another one, but um, have you ever had any really great mentor pickup lines? Like has anybody ever asked you to be a mentor in like kind of a comical way? You're actually the only person I've ever asked that question to, but I thought maybe you might have. That is a great question. And I don't think that he meant it to be a pickup line. And I, I think I was just overly flattered. Um, so I was having brunch. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm not famous whatsoever. I could not be far further from famous. So that's, that's context. I was eating brunch and this guy comes up to me and says, hey, are you due? I've never had that happen to me before. And I said, yeah. He goes, oh, I really like your work. I was like, I was took for a second. I was like, oh, thank you very much, right? That's really nice. And it's like, how do you know my work? He's like, I've seen your stuff. And and I've actually tweeted at you a couple of times. And my immediate reaction was like, was I nice to you? Because I'm kind of a jerk on social media, right? And so he goes, he goes no, no, you're completely nice, but I really liked your work. And so I said, well, yeah, tweet me again. And so we just built this relationship. I think it was just, you know, I don't think he intended to flatter me, but I was definitely very flattered. But I think that the basis of that is saying, recognizing that as the mentee is like, hey, Mr. Potential Mentor Person, you've done some things that I really admire. And can I specifically talk about those? That's very different than when people have approached me with like, hey, do you have any job advice? This kind of vague, like, you know, I'm a professor, you know, I'm a journalist, but it's all about like grabbing stuff for themselves. Oh, yeah. But that shit ain't vague. We know what they want. They just want a job (laughs) and they don't want to talk to us. Right, right. Exactly. Right. And so I know that you haven't done your homework on me. So why would I give any effort on you? So 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 not exactly a pickup line. It was flattering. But really, the most flattering part is he, he, he had knowledge of my expertise and how maybe that expertise could be helpful from him for him. So that worked out really well. He, he fully dead poet society you. He walked up, captain my captain. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. It's never happened to me again since. But so that's my that's my one moment. Yeah, Julie, I, I want to know from you what you thought of. I, put, I was putting myself in Dude's shoes as you're telling that story. And I was like, if someone comes to me and said, oh, I really like your work, I'd be like, you mean like when I trimmed my, the street tree outside my house? There's no way you know anything else about me. You must have seen me as you walk by. Well, but honestly, Jimmy, you know, Jimmy sent me a cold note on LinkedIn and was like, you know, your work, your, uh, your profile looks amazing. Your company looks amazing. I was like, what do you want? Like, yes. But he'd done some homework on you, right? He'd done some, he knew what the company, it wasn't like, hey, you're an entrepreneur. Like that's so vague, right? That means nothing. You're an entrepreneur. Uh, Julie, can I get a job after you squeeze (laughs) on my class? (laughs) 
Get mine, get mine. True, and it is, I mean, we both, I know Jimmy and I both, again, one of the reasons why we started this is we get approached with all this, you know, very, exactly like you're saying, super direct, can get you a job, you know, not, I want to get to know you, or I want to go get to know what you know, or, you know, have this conversation. So that's, that's part of this too. Wait, I, to that point, I, I'm never going to yes. knock anyone for hustling, right? Like, like yes. good for you for reaching out, but, but there are, but that's, a, that's a transaction. That's not a mentorship, right? And I think, I think maybe I hadn't thought about this before our discussion, but I think, I think both for the mentee, a transactional one-time thing is not a mentorship, but also for a person who aspires to be a mentor, you just don't go, Hey, call my friend at the post, that's not a mentorship. That's, that's, that's an in, right? It's like, it's really, I want you to be in a better place five years, 10 years from now. I think that's, that's how I would define mentorship. And I'd like to hear about it because it's gonna give me some kind of joy or you know happiness from just knowing that you're in a good place. Yeah, absolutely. Because I care about you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, dude, well, I think my last, last question is, do you have a book or a YouTube video or some kind of like consumption that you like to give to people when they're thinking about, hey, I'm starting some kind of new relationship, whether it's mentoring or I'm looking to try to achieve some kind of next level success for them. You're like, hey, this is always a really good for you to start with to kind of do your own introspective brainstorming. You know, I have such a varied batch of people that come to me with specific questions. So I don't have the one go to, but I do always encourage people, that person you idolize, because I'm speaking specifically from journalism, right? Like we, we quickly, a lot of us get into the industry because like we read this person or we saw this person's films. Those are real people. They're not like, you know, these mythical creatures. They're real people that started off with you. And I think the ones that kind of stay in an industry, whether it's business, whether it's finance or medicine or whether it's, you know, um, journalism, the ones that kind of hang out, have a deep respect for the industry and, and really want the industry to survive. So I remind people that they're real behind there. And secondly, if you do the homework on someone and you reach out, not when you need a job, but 10 steps before you need that job and you reach out to them, that is the play. But if, hey, I'm interested in social issues documentaries, I saw your film on this, I was wondering if we could have a coffee sometime. I will, if possible, if I'm in town, will take that call all the time. And I believe most of the people in my field are would as well. But if you're just like, hey, do you have a job? It's like delete. I mean, that's just never going to work for me. I love it. So what you're telling everybody is tweet at you something about a specific type of documentary and coffee time. <laughs> coffee time, right? 10 steps before you need the job. Hey, Augmenters. Okay, y'all, remember... We are here because real relationships have the power to transform organizations and build dynamic cultural connections. Visit our website for more interactive content at augmenters.us. Please like, subscribe, and most importantly, share our podcast with someone you care about. You know, somebody who wants to go into journalism, someone who's burgeoning on Substack. This would be a great episode to send their way. Feel free to drop us a line. Questions or suggestions via email, hi at augmenters.us, or find us on your favorite social media at AugmentersHQ. Thank you to our producers, Erlen Cato and Sean Omendam. See ya.